Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Care Home Option podcast series. I'm Gabriella Wills and with me today as always is Drew Rice. Hi everyone. The last episode uh, we dedicated to talking about end-of-life care and today we follow it up with uh, a guest who will tell us about their experience of supporting a loved one through the last years of their life and all the way to their death. So welcome Caroline and to start with could you please tell us and our listeners a little bit about your father? My father was a very active man. He was a professional man who was devoted to his career and his family. He loved socialising. He played a lot of sport when he was younger. And as he got older, he took up golf after he retired, um, which uh, was fantastic for him because he formed a whole new group of friends through golf. It was a wonderful social um, sort of atmosphere as well as being very good for him and, and keeping him physically active. Um, My mother died unexpectedly uh, about 12 years ago in 2010. And at that point, my father was in his sort of mid-80s. And it was very very unexpected, and it was a huge shock. And they were such a sort of solid couple, and they'd always done everything together. They had a lot of the same interests. She was also professional in the same area as him. And um, so they shared a huge amount. And suddenly my father was left bereft and on his own. And um, he was a man who was incredibly forward thinking in the sense of he didn't sit around moping or feeling sorry for himself. He had a tremendous zest for life, but a huge part of his life had effectively passed. And um, although at that time he didn't need sort of physical assistance, he was very fit, he was mentally very well. In fact, he was mentally very well up until the day he died, and we were terribly fortunate in that regard. But um, he was not good at sort of making a life for himself on his own. And it was actually my daughter at the time, who was eight, who sort of turned around to me and said, Mom, you know, Grandpa's on his own now. We have a window of opportunity to be with him which sounded frightfully high-handed from an eight-year-old, but you'd have to meet my daughter to understand that. Um, And so we talked to my father and said, you know, what do you think about us potentially moving in? Because we didn't live very far away. And um, he wasn't really sure. I think he thought it was a big commitment for us. I think he didn't want to feel as though he was a burden. And, you know, that was a big sort of thing for him. He never he never wanted to ask for help. He was not good at accepting help. And, you know, he didn't want to feel that he was sort of impinging on our lives. So um, a lot of discussions were had, including with my sister, who liked the idea very much. And eventually um, we agreed that we would move in with him because he had a, a, a large house um, which was suitable for all three of us living quite sort of independent lives within it, as, as it were. So um, we moved in. I did some structural alterations because I needed an office and various things. I I ran a business, still do, um, and work a lot from home. Um, So we all needed sort of our own space so that we didn't drive each other bonkers, basically. Um, I think part of the reason our relationship worked so well was we'd always got on very, very well. 
all three of us were very independent um, and doing our own thing. And that was very much a feature, I think, in the early days of our, our relationship um, and living together, you know, as a sort of multi-generational family. And also, I think we have a very um, robust view of aging, you know, despite the fact my father was in his sort of mid-80s at that time. For us, we felt that was young. I mean, my mother died young by our standards, <laughs> but she was, you know, she was 84. We felt that, um, you know, age was no barrier to doing things. And as a result, in moving in with him, we were able to expand his social life because obviously I could host dinner parties. I became his sort of plus one to go places. I had a wonderful time. We went to some terrific, uh, you know, sort of dinners and, and all sorts of I mean, opera and various things like that. And it was, it was fantastic. And he was able to see his friends because I was able to host them and that kind of thing. And so really it was about companionship and ensuring that his social life, as it were, um, was, you know, sort of optimized. But, you know, as I say, we don't view mid-80s as being old. We think you probably start getting old around about 90, providing obviously you're, you know, sort of healthy and, and mentally active. And we did all sorts of things that, you know, he simply wouldn't have done if we hadn't been there. And that was not only terribly good for him, but it was terribly good for us too. And it gave my daughter the opportunity of really getting to know her grandfather, who'd had such an interesting life. And, you know, forming that bond around, um, you know, sort of family history and things like that. We, we do come from a family that very much is, um, uh, it, it looks after itself. You know, we are very close. My mother looked after her parents and after my father's parents as well when they weren't well. So I suppose we'd always tried to avoid um, homes for the various members of the family, even when they were quite ill, um, because we felt that we had the capability to manage them at home. And certainly, you know, after my mother died, people were sort of saying to my father, well, wouldn't you like to downsize? You know, you live in a big house, you would downsize to... A a nice flat somewhere and my father was you know quite incensed by this He's, you know, this is my home he would say I'm comfortable here I'm happy here it's what I know and I think we really wanted to support that and we wanted to make sure that he maintained his independence for as long as possible and through us being here that was you know much more uh, a, re a reality having said that I mean it had massive upsides I had a hip replacement about six years ago and my father who was still tremendously active drove me everywhere it was not a one-way street, <laughs> and um, we, were, we were very interactive. Um, things started to change a little bit when he, um, he, was, he had an illness in his early 90s, and he was very, very unwell, and he was rushed into hospital, and we were actually told he was going to die. And we had a sort of odd dress rehearsal, whereby we were told that he had hours to live. He'd basically ruptured his aortic aneurysm, and he was bleeding to death. <clears throat> and he was asked, you know, do you just want to sort of sit and chat to your family or would you like, you know, would you like us to try and operate, which is unlikely to be successful or you'll end up being a vegetable, which was just anathema for my father. And he said, well, of course, I want to be with my family. So we basically prepared ourselves for the worst. And um, it didn't happen. <laughs> and uh, over the course of a few days... Um, he started to improve, and indeed, after about 10 days, he was released back home. Um, the doctor said it was quite miraculous and that, uh, you know, he should not be alive. 
Um, they call people like him apparently super beings because against all the odds, you know, the good thing happens. So that was quite difficult in the sense of he came home and he was very frail and he'd never really been that frail before. Mm. So there was an option, obviously, of putting him into care um, temporarily or, you know, managing him at home. And um, what we did was we got a full-time carer in who was able to sort of look after his personal care needs and, um, you know, make sure that he was, um, you know, sort of getting everything he needed that we couldn't supply um, during the days when he was, you know, very unwell. And then as he improved, actually we uh, liaised with social services and they sent someone in twice a day to sort of um, help him get up in the morning and to um, help him get into bed at night. Um, And that lasted a little while, but my father absolutely hated it. I mean, he positively railed against the, you know, the carer and eventually said, you know, I really, I just don't want them here anymore. And uh, I think that was, you know, that was very much who he was. He really, you know, he didn't want the help. He didn't think he needed it. So um, we got rid of all the carers and we went back to a routine whereby I was slightly more hands-on with him. And, um, you know, he had to accept that he needed a little more help. Uh, He improved significantly after that, however, and went on to, you know, live another three or four years very happily. But his mobility definitely started to um, uh, uh, decrease. And, you know, he was less able to get around. Um, And I suppose really in the final year, his mobility was not very good at all. Um, he was much less able, say, to, you know, he'd always walked up to the top of the road just to make sure he could, and he kind of stopped doing that. And there was a sort of gentle decline. Um, But, you know, the way to sort of counteract that was obviously to make sure that he was still socially active. A lot of his friends had died because, you know, by that time he was sort of 95. Um, We'd been living with him for, you know, sort of 11 years. And um, I think it's very difficult, particularly for old people, to watch all their friends pass away. You know, for you to be last man standing, as it were, um, that becomes quite difficult. So I sort of said to him, right, we have to cultivate some younger friends for you. And, um, you know, we we in fact did sort of get closer to some of the younger um, people he knew, younger being mid-80s rather than, you know, mid-90s. Um, and, and we just sort of continued on um, making sure that he was particularly, you know, sort of socially um, involved and doing things. COVID obviously came and drove a horse and cart through everything. So we couldn't have anybody at home. The only upside being that pretty much for a year, um, I was at home with him um, because I was working entirely from home and my daughter came home from university and she was here too. So pretty much the last year of his life, we were just sort of um, together engaged in a, in a sort of our own mini lockdown. We were all too scared to go out in case we bought anything mm. back home to him. So, you know, we were having sort of food deliveries and various things. And in some ways it was awful. And in some ways it was absolutely lovely because we had some really lovely quality time together, whether it was sort of, you know, playing trivial pursuit or sitting outside in the garden in the sun because it was, we had some lovely weather. And it was a very special time in many ways. And I think um, it was, well, it allowed us to kind of have that last year as something almost standalone, I suppose. Um, He was sort of more frail, 
but still very much enjoying life. And I think that was, you know, the thing about him was he really was someone who enjoyed life and, and wanted to get the most out of it. And mentally, he was absolutely superb. He had the most terrible sense of humour, very black. Um, there was nothing we didn't joke about. And I'm sure that's one of the reasons that, you know, he, he lived to a ripe old age and got through all sorts of things. Um, there was nothing we weren't able to talk about or make a joke of, really. Um, in his sort of final days, I think um, that was much more difficult because, you know, he didn't want anybody in and I, I didn't really want to bring anybody in to look after him. I knew how strongly he felt about it. So I became more hands-on and sort of, you know, helping him wash and things like that, which he did not enjoy at all. And I did explain to him that, you know, I'd seen it all before, if not on him, then on someone else. And he really didn't need to worry about it. And as usual, you know, we got through it all with humor and, and, and good grace. Um, but it, it became a lot more difficult. Um, and I was aware that, you know, I, I was not necessarily best qualified in terms of caring for someone in terms of their personal needs and that sort of thing. But you adapt. I mean, you do what you need to do. And when you care about someone, you know, your primary concern is making sure they're comfortable and they're happy. And he certainly was. Um, literally the last sort of three days of his life, he went downhill very quickly. And um, I couldn't manage him on my own. And I actually called my sister who joined me. And um, he was pretty much bedridden at that point. Um, and we were, you know, we were looking after his personal care needs and feeding him and that sort of thing. And when he eventually died, it was just incredibly peaceful. Um, my sister, my daughter and I were, were with him. The cat was sitting on him, um, you know, never left his side. He, he and the cat had a totally sort of symbiotic relationship. It was terribly sweet. Um, and it was incredibly peaceful. I think he'd have been very grateful to have passed away in that manner. Um, no pain, no pills, you know, nothing. He, the morning he died, he had a little piece of toast um, little sort of sip of water and whatever and, and then he just didn't wake up again so it was it was the best kind of death if that makes sense you know we're, we're terribly awkward about discussing you know death and, and what it means and what it looks like and I think when you have a good death it's a release for everybody so his death was not exactly a shock but it still leaves the most enormous void and you know even now sort of um well, not quite 18 months on, um, you know, we, we feel his presence, you know, we're still in the house that we live together uh, in, and um, he's all around us, I think. Uh, but as I say, I think uh, his death was the kindest death that you can possibly imagine, which I think helped us all deal with it more easily. I think when things are traumatic, it's, you know, it's much, much harder, and no one wants to see someone you love in pain. And, you know, my father was not there at all. He, he had a, a very, very happy life and a very peaceful death. Wow, thank you so much. What, a, what a, an account, really, of a, a very long period, but also a very emotional and meaningful time of, uh, well, all three of your lives, you, your daughter, and, of course, your father, who sounds like a remarkable person. He definitely was. Which you know, with a remarkable family. Um, and this kind of opportunity, maybe, or circumstances, which lead to what you 
went through. Um, not everybody will be under those circumstances. No, everybody will have the environment and the facilities, maybe the means to go through this. Uh, but I think what you mentioned, you, the, the house, the space in the house, you working from home, being close yep. and your father's very clear, um, I don't know, instruction in a way to say, this is what I want. We talked in other uh, episodes about how important those conversations are so that when possible, whoever the family is can as much as possible do what the person would like. Um, and talking about death, um, it's a taboo in so many people's lives, whether because of religious or other beliefs, yep. or just not knowing how. Yep. So the advantage that you had is that you have a very open attitude in your family towards talking about all these things and maybe starting asking you talking about care and support at the end of life all those decisions that you made were the time that you actually sat sat down whichever way had the conversation or did you just let it happen how did you know that it was the right thing all of you, including your daughter, who is quite young? That's a really interesting question. Um, I don't think we had formal conversations about it. There were the odd points, I think, particularly after my father had been ill, where, you know, I became a little more um, f assertive in terms of saying we need some extra help, albeit temporarily, mm. and knowing when that time is right. You know, our relationship is based on love and trust and care, but it's also about ensuring that the person you're with is safe yeah. and, you know, is, is getting what they need. And I don't think I was necessarily always the best person to provide that, hence having the, uh, you know, occasional extra support. Um, the point you make about the house is really important. I mean, we are tremendously lucky that we had the choice to be together in a house that is comfortable, where we have enough space. You know, all those sort of environmental factors, social factors, economic factors, they're all important. And the decision will be different for everybody. I just knew that um, it was right for us to be together. We got on so well. We were always a very close family. And, you know, it's in some ways, it's a little like marriage, but obviously without similar intimacy. Um, but, you know, you've got to be able to put up with the worst points of a person and still, you know, love them and be able to hug them and joke with them, in, you know, in, in the morning, as it were. Um, I think if we would got on each other's nerves or we didn't have the space to sort of remove ourselves from, the, you know, that sort of environment, then, then it becomes much more difficult. Um, but I think... Force majeure is often um, a, a, you know, a sort of indication that you need something extra. So, you know, you're asking me about extra help and when it's right. Clearly, if there's a medical imperative, it's right. Um, you cannot take that sort of thing on yourself. I mean, for instance, I would never have given my father an injection or, you know, intervened medically. So there were times when it was right to have a doctor around, 
Um, and there were times when it was right to have a, you know, some extra nursing care, personal care, things that he wouldn't necessarily have wanted me to do at that point. And I think one has to be very sensitive to that. I think my father was very much a man of his time. And that time was, you know, being quite proud, being quite private, um, being very independent and, you know, not really, you know, wanting to to have that level of help and care. You know, it smacked of lack of independence, etc. And he, you know, he hated that. So it, it's about feeling when it's right, as well as being led by, you know, sort of medical circumstances and other things as well. And I think if you can have the conversation, that's great. I don't think we ever apart from on a couple of occasions where I just sort of said, this is what we're doing. And he understood that, you know, it was probably a bit too much for me to cope with. Um, you know, that that was sort of how we managed it, really. So, again, you said you didn't have a formal conversations, but conversation, but you had obviously throughout the time discussed yes. and you, you knew what he wanted. Absolutely. And you only went above that or when you knew that it was the right thing to do. Absolutely, yes. I mean, his wishes were paramount. Okay. Um, he didn't need to stipulate the whole time. I knew what he wanted. He was, He's always someone who's said very clearly, for him, quality of life was incredibly important, more than longevity, and that, you know, that was really, he wanted to live his best life. Yeah. And he, you know, he made every effort to do that. But again, you know, we were tremendously fortunate on the whole, he was very fit and well. You know, he was mentally enormously, um, you know, he had all his marbles and he was tremendously capable and clever. Um, and that's not the same for everybody. And I think caring for someone who is very sick is incredibly difficult to caring for someone who is on their own and has occasional, you know, medical issues, as it were. So, you know, I had the circumstances been very different and he had been very ill, you know, we might have made a completely different set of choices, yeah. although I would have done everything in my power to keep him in his own home. Yeah. And particularly, you, you mentioned that there were times when he, his mobility was impaired. Again, I don't know how much, but did you ever feel that your health or your safety, in a way, you talked about having a back issue. So how did you make sure that you were okay because if you were not okay then he couldn't have stayed here uh, both physically but also emotionally that's uh, that's a really uh, also a really interesting question and something i think a lot of my friends um asked me about i have a fantastic support network i have really really wonderful friends and there's pretty much nothing i can't talk to them about um, quite interestingly, I think some of them, probably the people that didn't know me so well, felt I had almost given up my life to, you know, be with my father because they saw it as being, you know, rather restrictive in terms of me living my own life independently. I never felt that way. I made a choice. I made a, a very well-informed choice. And I, I did, you know, what I wanted to do as well as what I thought he wanted to do. I never felt I'd given up my life or, you know, had martyred myself somehow, you know, at the altar of my father's well-being. That was not, you know, it didn't come into my mind at all. And I think, you know, he gave as much to us as we did to him. So it was a very balanced relationship in, in that respect. Um, in terms of my own mental welfare, you know, there were occasions when life was quite stressful. But if I'm honest, you know, I'm someone that copes with stress reasonably well. 
and I can always vent at my lovely friends and even my daughter who is you know now in her 20s so you know there are always ways that you can sort of get around things um but if if the basis on which you're doing things makes you happy the stress is much less even in the difficult times if that makes sense and i i was doing the thing that made me happy as well as you know fortunately making other people happy too yeah and i it's almost a question i don't have to ask but i will ask it anyway now 18 months on and as you said you miss him and the, the of course again it's still quite fresh two questions one if you were again in that situation knowing what you know and feeling how you feel would you do the same again or if you have cha- changed anything what would that be leave my next question to after mm, gosh that's something i've actually never asked myself would i do anything differently Do you know I don't think I would surprisingly enough I don't think I would at all um it's always easy with hindsight to say oh I wish I'd done this or I wish I'd done that but you know circumstances sometimes overtake you and you do the best you can at that point and I think we um we did as well as we could have done I mean there might have been things we'd have done differently in lockdown possibly but probably not I think we were quite nervous of, you know, my father catching anything because by that time it would probably have, you know, got rid of him quite quickly. There was no, you know, vaccine or anything at that point. And even he was quite nervous, which was very unlike him. He was quite nervous about catching it. So I suppose, you know, being in isolation for a long time was not ideal, but would I have changed it? Probably not because the risk factors would be the same, you know, if, you know, if we replayed it. Um I don't think there's anything really I would have changed. Possibly I'd have taken a few more holidays with him, but <laughs> you know, we had a few and and they were wonderful. I think I'd have probably liked to have done a few more weekends away and that sort of thing. But you know, we were busy here and he seemed perfectly content in, you know, meeting people here or you know, just sort of in our own company. So no, I don't think there's anything fundamentally I'd have done differently. And that really leads me to the next question. The question is about when when we lose a parent. There is always an element, I think it is always, I certainly went through it, of, I don't know if guilt, but questioning, A, have we been good sons and daughters, generally? Um, and there is always something that we think, maybe we weren't perfect. Um, but also how we, how those last days hours went um so my question to you is you know things took the course that they did but do you feel at peace because of how it was yeah. for him and for you and for everyone do you also think that it may have been different if suddenly a decision, he had to go into hospital and maybe die there rather than in this very family and familiar surrounding that you dis- described mm. uh the guilt question is is always one i think one comes back to um 
I suppose one would ask, you know, what would I feel guilty about, you know, not being there, not being present, not doing enough, not, gosh, I mean, we can, we can screw ourselves up terribly (laughs) thinking about that. Um, I don't feel guilty. I don't think about anything. And I think one of the reasons for that is actually uh, a little while before my father died, um, he was sitting in the living room. We were just having a chat about something and he looked out of the window and said, I've had the most wonderful life and I couldn't have been happier. And I think that was partly his way of, you know, telling me that he was really happy with the way, you know, our relationship had been and that um, there was really nothing more he wanted. He'd achieved everything he'd wanted. He had a very loving family. He, you know, he'd been a, a huge influence on us and, you know, a huge figure in the world in which he operated. And um, I think he really wanted us to know that. Um, so, no, I don't, I don't have any guilt. Um, I am hugely grateful he didn't end his days in hospital because obviously when he was in hospital previously, we thought he would and we thought he was going to die in hospital and it's you know, for anybody, it's it's not a good environment. You know, it's not where you want your loved ones to be. Um, if he'd have needed to go into hospital, I would have taken the decision to, you know, get him there, uh, whether by ambulance or driving him or whatever else. And in fact, a few days before he died, he was offered some further treatment um, to sort of pep him up a bit. And, you know, I said to my father, would you like that? And he said, no, darling, I'm absolutely fine. And I think he was sort of ready in his own way. Um, I don't think the treatment would have done anything. It was just, you know, blood transfusion. It might have given him a few extra days, but it wouldn't have done anything material. Um, and I think he, he was sort of aware that he was just sort of quietly shutting down. So, you know, it, it was a very natural process with no intervention. Um, and as I say, I think he'd have been he'd have been very pleased about that. Probably the only way he would have preferred to have gone was, you know, scoring a hole in one on the golf course or something <laughs> like that. But that was terribly unlikely. So I, I think this was a, a, a the best under you know, the second best. Um, and I think you know he'd have he'd have been grateful if he'd have been watching himself. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Caroline. Um, It's not surprising that you become emotional. Of course, this is such a close, intimate, emotional thing to talk about. So again, thank you for sharing this with us. If you are okay to talk about it, could you describe kind of what happened after he passed away? Uh, Both practically, what, what did you do? How, again, especially somebody dying at home, which it's not that common, I think, anymore. Yes, I, I think, you know, at the point of death, you sort of go into autopilot, really. Um, you just have to get the practicalities sorted. And I think if I was putting this on as a stage play, it would probably be a bit of a farce. Um, my father died in the evening, and we needed to get someone to certify that he was dead, effectively. Um, we knew he was dead. Uh, we could take a pulse. We had a stethoscope and, you know, we did the, is he breathing on the mirror test? You know, we did all those things. The cat checked. We all checked. We were all satisfied he'd gone. So then we needed, um, 
we needed to get his death certified. And I can't quite remember, we either called 111 or the GP practice and explained that we needed to we needed someone to come out and uh, effectively register that he had died officially. Um, that was not very easy. And it took a very, very long time for someone to come out and confirm that effectively life was extinct. And by the time they'd done that, it was very, very late at night. And we were already sort of into Friday morning. And there were practical considerations around burial um, because uh, we wanted him uh, buried in our tradition uh, very quickly. And in order to do that, we needed to get a full death certificate from the doctor who needed this other certificate, the you know, life is extinct certificate that the gentleman had signed uh, at midnight. So we then had to go down to the doctor's surgery and try and get um, a death certificate, which took a long time. We couldn't start the burial process until we had that. So my father effectively remained overnight in, in the house um, until we the following morning the doctor opened and we could effectively go and get the formal death certificate. And that was, I mean... <laughs> I suppose some people would think of it as being a bit macabre. I mean, he was in bed. He was dead. He looked as though he was sleeping. We all went in, sort of checked on him from time to time, not to make sure that he was still there, but you know, just because we always did. So we sort of, you know, in and out of his room and sort of talking to him as we went through, just as though he was still there, really. Um, and in the morning, uh, as I say, we went down to the doctors. It took a long time to get a death certificate, at which point we started to put the wheels in motion to get him buried. And we needed to get him taken away. And that took a little bit of time. And it didn't happen until sort of quite late on the Friday afternoon. And <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. It really, my father would have absolutely been killing himself laughing. Um, these two men arrived to sort of take the body away. And I mean, it was, it was a little bit Laurel and Hardy, if I'm absolutely honest. They sort of got him onto a stretcher and, you know, he was covered up and all that sort of thing. And, and they were trying to get him downstairs through the, through the doorway of his bedroom. And one of them slipped and he nearly sort of rolled downstairs. My daughter and I were standing at the bottom of the stairs. We didn't know whether to laugh or cry. It was it was just so bizarre but it was also you know the bleakest blackest humor you can possibly imagine anyway they eventually got him out of the door and, and put him in the van and and you know we sort of stood guard while he was taken out and um, and they drove away with him and you know that was that was it really and then the machinations of getting mm. him you know buried quite quickly which eventually happened on the sunday that in itself was, you know, a, a quite a, 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 a drawn-out process, although everybody was very helpful and we did manage it. Um, but it, it, was not, it was not without difficulties. So if you die at home, you know, you don't have the sort of um, instant help that you would have, say, in a hospital where you've got people certified death and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And actually, I don't think we're terribly well geared up for people dying at home. And it, it gave me, you know, quite an insight into um, the, the process of what happens when someone does die at home. And it's not very efficient at all. And particularly if it's out of hours, you know, when doctor surgeries are closed and, you know, all that sort of thing. There simply aren't people to come and, and, and certify that life is extinct. And, you know, perhaps as a society, that's something that we need to give some consideration to because... 
clearly I think a lot of people would choose to die at home if they can and if it's yeah. appropriate and you know and and suitable um, but we need to have the infrastructure that allows people to do that. Thanks again Caroline for sharing your experience I know it's not easy uh, but uh, it was definitely not just emotional but very interesting helpful valuable to hear both for Drew and myself and I'm sure our listeners will as well be very grateful to you for this so thank you Caroline thank you I hope I've done my father's legacy justice (laughs) I don't think you could have done any more and to all our listeners goodbye goodbye everyone